Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate, Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian, Dr. Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know how hard it is to raise children in a technology-centric world and we want to help. What have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of Paper Planes, and we'll be shooting the breeze about children's rights in the digital world. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that it can inform you and your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a study from the US about media use and family rules. What kind of parenting strategies work best? So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Oregon about uh, family video game watching rules, yeah? Mm-hmm. Kim, why'd they do this research? Well, Liz, you've been in this game for longer than I've been uh, in the advocacy space, but as you know, there will forever be an ongoing debate about violence in the media and video games and its effects on children. And the newspapers love it because people are drawn to those articles and of course gamers always complain that they're unfairly being targeted and their their games that they love so much are being targeted but there are often conflicting reports and disinformation which can be confusing for parents and especially where the US where this study was done they have a real issue with school shootings and mm. often that they're made links with the video games that the shooters might be playing uh, the research says that violence in video games teach players how to aggress Uh, priming their thinking and increase arousal and aggression states. And I often have discussions with parents about the Australian classification guidelines and make links between their child's aggression and their violent behaviour. I think the special thing about this study is that it links to the parent's parenting style and the level of restrictions with regards to their child's gaming access. Mm, Okay, so it brings it back home rather than keeping it out there in that sort of really big public policy space. Like, you know, how, how can you actually address this right here in your own home? Definitely. Yeah? Okay. So how did they go about this research? What was the methodology? The, the researchers randomly called and surveyed 2,700 teenagers across the US. How many? 2,700. Right, yeah. Yeah, almost 3,000. Mm, quite a lot. And asked them about their parents' parenting style, their restriction in gaming, And they actually split the parenting styles into four different categories Mm -hmm. based on whether the parents were neglectful and permissive, whether they were authoritative or authoritarian. And this is based on the level of parental expectations on the child and their their actual warmth towards their child in Mm. their parenting styles. And when they asked the children about their aggression and their aggressive outcomes, they asked questions like, during the past month, How many times did you hit, slap, or shove someone who was not a member of your family? During the past month, how many times were you sent to the school office because of fighting? And the teenagers were able to, you know, rate how often that would Mm -hmm. happen. Right. Okay. And then what they do with that information? Well, they found out that the parents who were authoritative, that is, have high expectations on their child's behavior but also providing their children with a high level of warmth, experience less aggression from their children's behaviour. Okay. Is anything surprising about that finding? Does it fit in with what we already know? 
I mean, I guess if your parents care about you and support you and also have a good sense of um, family values and morals and how you should behave through modeling, then I think, yeah, it's obviously going to have positive effects, but also uh, making sure that you actually restrict your child's access. Now, the thing to remember about this is that the M rating in the US actually starts at 17. So you're probably looking at quite violent games that kids could potentially be playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they looked at those classifications and and what was actually allowed when they were asking the questions of the kids. Yeah. Yeah. So the ones who were allowed to see the higher classified stuff were more likely to have been involved in aggression. Yes. Yeah. I guess there's always a a question with that kind of finding isn't there about well do they watch higher classified stuff because they're people who like aggression anyway or is this stuff making them aggressive well the other concern that they had was is that if you restrict too much does it become this forbidden fruit Mm -hmm. idea where they're drawn to it later down the track now for these group of teenagers who were sort of 13 14 years of age they didn't find that Okay, that there was no forbidden fruit effect? No. Right, okay. Interesting. Because that is something that's sort of general folk wisdom, isn't it? That if you prohibit something, it makes people want them more, want it more. But I guess um, they didn't find it in this particular case. All right. So um, did you have any reservations about this finding? Or might other people have reservations? Yeah, so they looked at one particular parenting strategy, which is restriction. But they didn't really cover any other parenting strategies such as co-viewing or mediating. Mm, right, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and co-viewing, I think, from other literature we know is a potentially really helpful strategy for parenting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm actually seeing parents who are gamers themselves and are playing video games with their children to try and connect with them. And, mm. um, you know, that's a really useful way of bonding. I was thinking these parents who still end up in your office or are these people who aren't necessarily patients or kids who aren't patients? No, these are uh, parents of uh, children who are patients, yeah. Yeah, okay, right. So it's not necessarily an answer to everything to, to be co-viewing or co-playing. But still, if, if you can just you know get the conversation going where you're putting the, the content in context for the child and saying, well, you know, gee, that would have really hurt or, um, you know, wasn't there another way that they could have solved that problem, then that, that at least sort of counterbalances the messages that we know a lot of kids get from violent content. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important that, you know, when you are playing video games with your child that you're aware of uh, what you're saying and, you know, people can get, can get really competitive in games and mm. swear and, you know, curse and, you know, that's really going to definitely flow onto your children. Mm. And, and they're probably seeing it in the streams that they're watching as well because to make it interesting, people will be toxic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're talking about fairly young children, it could be a bit of a worry. So do you think there's any kind of danger that a, a finding like this might be distorted or oversimplified in the way it's reported? Look, I don't find any issue with making the message clear that exposing your child to violent themes and violent imagery and interacting with that uh, could lead them to be desensitised to violence. But I I think um, people need to be clear that it's hard to find a causality that, you know, A plus B equals C, but definitely there's a correlation. Yeah, and and it's, it's about a risk. You know, you don't have to sort of say, well... Every single person who ever plays this game is going to turn into an axe murderer. But if you say, well, you know, if this combines with other kinds of things in a person's life, it could tip them in that direction or, you know, just make them a bit more aggressive in their daily life. That's a bad enough thing. You know, you don't have to be a school shooter for 
violence to have a negative impact on your life. Okay. Um, now, what about your practice as a psychiatrist? Will this affect the way that you practice or will it work in, in any way? I think it's important for parents to clearly communicate and explain uh, why they're doing what they're doing and why they're placing restrictions and be supportive yet firm with their children and um, make sure that they are um, warm and supportive. Mm, yeah. And and that's something that you know we know from a lot of parenting research, isn't it? I mean, that's nothing new in this in this particular study. That idea that the authoritative, you know, warm yet firm parenting style is clearly the most effective. I don't know. Maybe in different situations, other things might be called for, but that does seem to be the general message, isn't it, from parenting research? And so, what about um, parents themselves? Can this research inform parents in the way that they? interact with their children? I think it's important that parents realise that they are the gatekeepers to their child accessing certain content, but it is becoming increasingly difficult because now the business model is you download the game for free, it's a free to play and you play to win, and so that might bypass the traditional ways children access video games and Mm -hmm. that is usually through their parents and asking, mum, dad, can I buy this game? Mm. It's going to cost 80 bucks. You have the credit card. Yeah. Um, let's go to the shop, get the physical copy, and the parents will be like, um, sorry, this is an M-rated game. This is not suitable. Mm. Yeah, that's right. The free-to-play things are a real concern in many ways. There's what you were just talking about, but also the fact that if they're free-to-play, that means that they're getting money some other way. And it might be through in-game transactions or purchases. It might be through advertising. And if it's a high-rated game, then the advertising is likely to be more appropriate for older people than for your younger child. All sorts of reasons to really keep an eye on that kind of thing. Definitely. Okay. Well, that's another piece of research done. And I hope you found that informative, listeners. Now we're going to move on to the next segment. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Liz. Hi, I'm Fiona and I'm here with some information from the ACCM Review of Paper Planes. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend parental guidance for children under six, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. If you haven't already seen the movie, spoiler alert, I'm going to mention what happens at the end. Paper Planes is an Australian live-action movie from 2015. It follows the story of Dylan Webber, a young boy who lives with his father, Jack. Dylan's mother has recently died in a car accident. One day, at school, the class activity consists of making paper planes, and Dylan shows such talent at this, his teacher encourages him to enter competitions. Dylan successfully makes it through the Australian National Competition, and then it's next stop, Japan. Dylan and his father have a garage sale to raise money for a ticket to Japan, but Jack is still feeling too grief-stricken to take the trip with his son. The day before the World Finals in Japan, Dylan is subject to some physical bullying by a rival and he has to overcome an injury in order to compete. And meanwhile, Jack overcomes his depression and arrives to see Dylan compete. There is some violence in the film, including the bullying that Dylan experiences, which involves another child pushing him down a flight of stairs. There are more details on the ACCM website. In addition to the violent parts, there are some scenes in this movie that could scare children under the age of five, including where the boys are almost hit by a rocket. 
Children aged five to eight could be upset by the theme relating to Dylan's mother having died, especially the signs that his father is still severely depressed and unable to function. Regarding sexual references, there is just one brief one, involving Dylan's grandpa and the other residents of his nursing home. Paper planes represents quite a few values that you may wish to reinforce with your children, including acting independently in order to overcome obstacles, being creative and seeing the value in doing something unique, and supporting your family and standing by them while they are going through a difficult time. This movie also gives you the opportunity to discuss certain attitudes and behaviours with your children and the real-life consequences, such as the devastating impact of grief, loss and depression, the nature of bullying and the impact it may have upon individuals who are affected, and competitive activities and competitions, as well as the sacrifices and determination it takes to succeed. In a nutshell, Paper Planes is an inspirational and heartwarming film. Dylan's determination helps to ignite passion in all of those around him as he works to overcome incredible obstacles. After the death of his wife, Dylan's father has fallen into a deep depression and stopped taking care of him. As a result, Dylan is forced to study planes and flight on his own, make new friendships and attempt to win the world championship for paper plane flight while helping his father come out of the depth of his depression at the same time. The film highlights the strength of character that develops when you overcome challenging situations as well as the importance of building strong and supportive relationships. It's a great movie for the whole family, although younger children may need their parents' help, particularly in understanding the father's behaviour. Paper Planes is available on the streaming service Stan and the ACCM reviewers recommend parental guidance for children under six. You can find a more detailed review on the ACCM website. And when Fiona talks about the ACCM website, that's childrenandmedia.org.au or what we now know as Children and Media Australia. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab, then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. There are also reviews of game style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time to have a chat about our policy development of the day. Liz and I are going to have a chat about a recent document outlining how children's rights apply in the digital world. So Liz, what is the Convention on the Rights of the Child? Well, it's an international agreement that was concluded in 1989. It's agreement between all the countries of the world except one, which happens to be the USA, but all the others are signatories. So it's basically a treaty. We call it a convention because it's sort of a bigger, grander term, but it's really just an agreement between countries. And as the name says, it's on the rights of children, so it just lays down certain rights, as well as some very broad principles for governments when children's interests are at stake. So things like non-discrimination, the best interests of the child being a paramount consideration, things like that. They're not so much specific rights about particular things, but more just about a whole way that one approaches regulations that have an impact on children. And what does the convention say about children and screen use? 
Well, considering that it was concluded in the 1980s, not nearly as much as it would say if we were drafting it today, there is one article in it that directly addresses the question of mass media. And it's a very complicated one because it balances between the need to give children access to beneficial content through the mass media, well, their right to access to beneficial content, but on the other hand, protection from what's called injurious content. And there was a long history of negotiating this particular section. All different sorts of interests were involved from different countries. And this is why they ended up sort of with this mishmash of things where they're trying to say, yes, children should have access to mass media, oh, but they should be protected from injurious content. So they're sort of playing both ends of the field at once and um, maybe not doing either terribly well. Right. And Liz, what rights do children have online? Well, just starting most generally, there always has to be this balance, like I was just saying, between their right to access content and their right to be protected from injurious content or inappropriate content. Children have a right to privacy and they also have a right to access to information that's going to be beneficial to their health or to their development in some way. And certainly these days we would recognise things like the fact that children, particularly older children and adolescents, rely a lot on online fora to connect with other people, to explore their identity, as well as being entertained, educated, informed and all that sort of stuff. So that's all there. The statement that has come out recently that the Committee on the Rights of the Child has put out, it's called General Comment 25. So this is the 25th one like this they've put out on different... Uh, topics. This one just happens to be on digital rights or children's rights in the digital world. And it puts a lot of emphasis on this right to access side. So for example, Article 17, the one that I was talking about before, that is about the right to access information and the right to be protected from um, injurious content, only mentions that article in relation to access to information. It doesn't say anything about the right or the the obligation that governments have to encourage the development of guidelines to prevent access to injurious content. That seems like a really serious omission in something that's supposed to be about children's rights in uh, the digital world. There's also mention of ensuring that business fulfills its responsibility, and that's a really important part of the picture because businesses are the ones that control so much of the online space and have a huge amount of power as we're learning more and more day to day. I think the general comment could make that even clearer. It it touches on that kind of thing, but it could be even clearer about it because that's just such a huge part of the picture and it's only going to get bigger, I think. And what does the general comment have to say about parents? Well, the convention itself has some interesting things to say about parents that are often overlooked. It makes it very clear that Parents have a right themselves to support from their government as to how they raise their children and how they help to fulfil their rights. There's quite a lot in the general comment about how governments can support parents to manage their children's engagement. If anything, maybe a little bit too much on parents and how they can be supported to manage children's engagement with digital content because... I wonder if they're being a little bit over-optimistic about how much parents can do. Obviously, parents can do quite a lot, but there is only so much you can do as one parent in one family in one home. So I would have liked to see a lot more about safety by design, which is something that would come from industry itself. The people who are developing these tools and platforms and so on 
they're designing it, they could design them to be safe for children, but they haven't done terribly much in that direction so far. And also regulation, which would be more the government side of things, there's quite a lot governments can do uh, to help make spaces safer for children. And um, there hasn't been a whole lot said at this stage in the general comment about that. And the convention applies to everybody under the age of 18. Are there different needs of children at different stages of their lives? Look, obviously there are. You know, we we talk about that all the time, that the the needs of a toddler are very different from the needs of a 17-year-old. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Nobody would suggest otherwise. But the recognition of those different ages and stages does seem to be a little bit haphazard. It isn't built in systematically into the statement that yeah, there is a bit in there. There's a recognition that children have evolving capacities as the convention itself recognises. And they have inserted some fairly clear language about the need to recognise evolving capacities or ages and stages, as we might say in child development language. And also they've acknowledged in the statement that anything that's geared towards age appropriateness needs to be based on research and needs to be based on evidence from research and needs to be based on research from a range of disciplines, which I think is really, really important because there's so many different ways of of approaching research about children and media. And um, if you were just looking at one particular discipline, you wouldn't get the full picture. So it's great that they've included that in in the statement. All right. Thanks, Liz. My pleasure. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for Episode 5. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, and even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. And finally... You can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And this This has been been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.